And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able, you plural, talking to the sons, able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them then, Then you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant. That is, the other ones that aren't the two of the twelve. They were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus, again, explaining the gospel. As he's tried now, this was his third moment of predicting or foretelling what will happen to him when he enters into Jerusalem third time he's done this and every time he's done this it has always been rejected or ignored or the conversation has been diverted right so it was only a few chapters ago in Matthew 16 where where Jesus first time uh, introduced this concept to his disciples where he said that he must go uh, to Jerusalem to die he said particularly now Earlier in Matthew 16, very far north on the map, he was in Caesarea Philippi, very far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city down south in the lower parts of uh, the Levant or, um, well, Palestine, which is the root word for Philistine. And here we have Palestinian war. Nothing's changed from the Philistines of the Bible. But up in the north, in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, I need to go to Jerusalem and die. And right after he said that, Peter said, Far be it from you, you're the Lord, you can't suffer and die. And so the Lord rebuked him. Then shortly after that, the next chapter over in Matthew 17, Jesus again is now moved south, not in Caesarea Philippi, but on the map down here in Galilee, in which he says, I'm telling you, I need to go to Jerusalem to die, except he gives a little more detail. He said, I need to be raised on the third day. The Son of Man must be delivered over and killed. And right after he said that, one of the disciples come and say, now who can be the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus would respond and say, are you not hearing me? I just said, I need to go die, and you want to know which one's the biggest child of you. Because you're all children. Who really cares? You're all so short. You're just children. You want to be the tallest child? Like, they're missing the point. I need to go suffer and save and serve. And so now, here, 
It's the third warning. But not in the far north or even in Galilee. Now we're told Jesus is on the way. He's right at the front door of Jerusalem. He's about ready to go into Jerusalem. And the third warning, the third prediction, where he says nothing more except repeating what he's been saying all along with even more detail, where he says here now, the Son of Man must be delivered by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. He must be condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles. And they will, first time he says this word, crucify him. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day I'll arise again. And sure enough, how is that received? And how are they responding? A mother comes and says, now, which one of my sons can be the top CEO of this new kingdom? It's the same theme. That when you read the Gospels, you're like, why is Jesus repeating himself so often, saying he needs to go down to Jerusalem to die on the cross? As Christians now, understanding the whole Gospel, we get it, and it seems a little redundant. Why is Matthew repeating it over and over? Because the principle of it is actually very obtuse to us. Is that he could only repeat it more and more and preach again it over and over, even this morning, to say, we must sacrifice and serve. And that message can't be overly repeated because our own hearts are so prone toward selfish ambition. That every time he mentions the true gospel, it is almost ignored or sidestepped into how can I get glory for myself. And so here he warns them, this is what I'm about. I am the king of this new kingdom. And I am a servant lord, servant leadership. But after explaining the situation to his disciples, we're told that this mother of Zebedee, which actually for all accounts could probably be uh, Jesus' aunt, that is James and John, the mother's children, are most likely Jesus' cousins. That she comes to Jesus and approaches him humbly and petitions. We're told she's kneeling. She says to him particularly, Say, I want you to say that these sons of mine, behind, apparently, in the region, location, they're all hearing this, these sons of mine, have them sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus simply responds, You're not hearing me. You don't even know what you're asking for. Could you drink the cup that I am to drink? Which in Scripture refers to the preordained plan of God for your life. We all have cups we have to drink. There's things we have to have that are God's for us. A particular concoction of God's providential dealings upon your life. You have to drink that cup. And Jesus has just clearly said that the cup for him is suffering. So why would you ask, he says, to follow after me? You're asking for glory and greatness? You're asking to sit on thrones next to me? Have you not heard the way that go with that? Is that I must die on the cross? Can you drink the cup that I drink? He says, you don't know what you're asking. But they, of course, respond and say, yes, we're able. It's just a naive thing. It's a true answer. It's a good answer. But it's a naive answer to not know 
truly what it means to follow Jesus here. And so he says, then very well, you will drink my cup. And the apostles suffered greatly for Christ and the gospel. But their rewards were good as well. See, what's going on here is a degree of glory that is promised for you. That there are rewards for us in this life. What I'm to say is this. Everything in your life right now matters. Everything you do matters. Everything you think, everything you say. Your motivations behind all the positions and the titles that the Lord has given you. They all mean something. They're going toward an eternal reward, a glory. See, Jesus didn't stop them when they asked for thrones. He didn't say that was wrong. He didn't say they don't exist. He didn't say the first is last and the last is first, so quit asking for the first seat. He actually said, yes, there is a first seat in heaven. There is one to my right. But it's not for me to give. But he didn't say it's not there. See, there are rewards. There's a degree of glory. There's a degree of honor for following Christ. His promise was particularly, anyone who lays down his life will receive a hundredfold. There is a real incentive toward reward that God will give you glory upon glory. The reason they're even asking this, of course, is just the previous chapter, Jesus responded to a question where the disciples said, we've left everything to follow you. What is in it for us? And Jesus, without any bashfulness or shame, simply says with raw ambition, oh, there's a lot for you. In the new world, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That is to say, there is glory to be had. That is, Jesus is understanding before his cross, there is glory that he is reaching for. There is a throne, a glorious throne, a shining throne, that because of his death and resurrection and his sacrificial service unto salvation, he will be glorified. He will be made much of. Heaven will be heaven because of his magnificence. And those who follow him will have thrones too. To sit in this glory. There are rewards for heaven. There are reasons to sacrifice. There is a reason to die to yourself. Because he is offering more than anything this world can give. But the problem, of course, is this then. So maybe, not to come off as self-seeking, it was their mother that asked. That way the disciples can always say, hey, you know how moms are. I don't want those thrones, those icky thrones of honor, where everyone thinks I'm amazing. That, no, no, it's not me. But you know how my mom is. You see. There's a little out that way. Doesn't seem so self-seeking. But she asked, and Jesus answered. But everyone else saw. We're told that the other ten were indignant 
They were offended. Look at these two trying to get ahead of us. Do you see? Doesn't that mean encourage, an encouragement for you that in the discipleship uh, group of Jesus Christ, our very Lord, there's nothing more than the normal office chatter, the normal business of this life, covetousness and envy, chest pumping and chin raising. Jesus had to deal with all of that, his foolish disciples like you and I. And so, of course, the other ten is simply indignant by this. And the ironic thing of it all is when they ask, what is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus responds, it is those who are like little children who don't have any status. Those are the greatest. And the ironic thing of it all is there is a mother asking for significant status for her children. But it's true. Jesus doesn't correct them. There really are rewards and degrees of glory in heaven. We find this consistently throughout the teaching in Scripture. In Matthew 25, only a few chapters later, Jesus will teach the parable of the talents, in which one man is given five talents, another man is given two talents, another man is given one talent. But how they do with their talents, they receive even more. And a a diversification of reward. The one who had five had more. The one who had two had a little more. But it was different. They had different rewards for how they managed their master's money, their resources, his life. In Luke 9, it's probably no more clearer than Luke 19, in which we're told that Jesus has a parable of a man who distributed pounds to various servants. One man received 10 pounds, and then we're told, at the day of reckoning, at the day of judgment, the pinnacle between the old and the new, it translates into 10 cities. And the one who had received different pounds, particularly 5 pounds, at the day of reckoning, received five cities as his reward. So in the reward, Jesus is teaching, one man has ten cities and one man has five cities. There is a diversification of rewards for this life. What we do with our resources. How we bring it all under Jesus Christ. How we make our whole life a fragrant offering, an aroma to Jesus with everything we have. There's rewards for that. It's a beautiful thing. Second Corinthians 9.6 says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But each one must give as he's decided in his own heart and not under compulsion. But God loves a cheerful giver. To give. To be generous. If you give generously, God's promise is, you will not forget. You will reap generously. Perhaps most clearly is 1 Corinthians 3.14, where Paul says that those who labor in the gospel, teaching of the gospel, will receive reward depending on how they labor. It says particularly those who labor well, a man's work will remain and he'll receive a reward. And if any man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss. Even though he will be saved, he will suffer loss through fire. That is, you can build your life on Christ, particularly in ministering the gospel in this context, that if it is built on Christ, it is tested through fire. Fire has a way of getting down to the essential elements of things. I was talking with a friend just yesterday about Andrew Carnegie, about when he died. 
He labeled every library in the country with a Carnegie Library and a Carnegie Institute. And you say, well, he was so brutal to his workers and he was maybe not a very generous man throughout most of his life. Um, but when you're going to die, and we don't know the motives, but when you're going to die and your name won't live on, at least you can placard on a library. Right, so what's the motivation for this philanthropy? The Lord knows. What we're told in Scripture is, it will pass through fire. Fire has a way of finding out the essential elements of the things we've done. And anything built on Christ is refined. It lasts. It becomes gold inside of our crown. But this is an odd image for heaven. Wouldn't you think? considering it already elicited such a terrible response with the disciples, <laughs> that they don't like each other because they're already competing for honor. Wouldn't that not make heaven not very enjoyable? Isn't that sound a little bit more like it is now? Always competing to get ahead and looking side-eye at what someone else has. The reason this is a problem is because we just don't know truly what the love of God is. Because you remember there's another parable we just saw with Jesus. This parable of the day laborers. Which it seems though heaven is not so stratified that everything is equal. Jesus just spoke about these day laborers. The parable goes as far as Jesus was concerned that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who has a vineyard and he goes and hires laborers in a market. Certain labor he hires early in the morning, and he agrees with them for one day of labor, denarius. But then he goes back again in the third hour at 9 a.m., in the sixth hour at 12 p.m., in the ninth hour at 3 p.m., in the eleventh hour, finally at 5 p.m., when the regular workday was from 7 to 6, and therefore the, those hired at 5 p.m. only worked for one hour. But at the end of it all, he paid them all a denarius, a whole day's work of labor. And the first were bittered and said, why, why did you pay the last, the same as us, when they only worked an hour? And the verse particularly says they grumbled at the ones who worked only one hour because you have made them equal with us. That is, there's an equality of heaven. There's an equality to the way God deals with us. That we all are the same. That there is no more competition. Yet at the same time, there's these other parables in which certain talents are given to some, and some have ten cities, and some have five, and some have more rewards, and some have less, and some get to sit at Jesus' right hand, and some don't. So how is this any better? One miscalculation of it all is forgetting that we will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That we will see Him and be made like Him. It's the false equation between diversity and envy. That it is possible to have differences and different levels of blessing, and not actually be bothered by it. Not actually be covetous of it. Not actually be envious of it. 
there is a difference between blessedness and brightness. In heaven, we're told we will all be perfectly blessed. There will be no wrong. Our hearts will be at perfect peace and communion with our Lord. Yet also we're told in heaven that there will be degrees of glory, a strata, a beauty, a diversity that we find throughout the whole world that God has made, that he happens to like very much, that happens to be very good and beautiful to him, that some humans are tall and some are short and some are male and some are female, and some are rich and some are poor and some are smart and some are strong. That is good to the Lord. He likes this kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with it at all. That there's various brightnesses, glories given to us. See, the scriptures teach this. That it's just the way the Lord made the natural heavens we see every day. Pointing to the heavens that are to come. Jesus did say in the new world there will be thrones. And twelve thrones even for the apostles that are not for us. But Daniel 12 says it this way. In that day, the final end... Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above those. And those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars that shine forever. You see? We will be glorious. We will be full of honor as we are in the presence of Jesus Christ's glorious throne. And it will be something like the heavens, something like the stars. We will have a beauty about us. That is heavenly, like God has made the natural heavens that we look at every night. It's there for picture. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, particularly speaking about our resurrected bodies in that moment, when we are all perfect, that there will be heavenly bodies as there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly body is of another kind. There is a glory of the sun, there is a glory of the moon, and of the stars. But star differs from star in glory. That is the glory of our resurrection. The glory of being in Jesus Christ. What makes heaven so beautiful is that we will share in that glory. And there will even be different degrees of this glory. But that is not a problem at all. Because that diversity is beauty in the Lord's eyes. Because we know even now in this church that the Lord, one Lord has given this one church many gifts like body parts. By one spirit. And we're all different already. We all have different degrees of level of authority and honor and glory and different positions in our life. And we're already told in this moment to not ever envy one of, either of us. To not ever look at anyone and wish you could have what they have. To be free from these things. And that is a battle. It is hard to put away the old man who loves selfish ambition and loves looking to compare and loves looking to get ahead. It's hard to put that away, but we can put that away. And we are promised, we are promised that when we are resurrected, we will be resurrected to spiritual bodies. Bodies that are incapable of sin. Glorious bodies that cannot do anything else except take joy in the glory of another. Love. Like real love. Like where your good is my joy. That if you do better than me, I win. That kind of love. That if you're more honored, I'm more happy. 
That's why it doesn't make sense to us. Because that kind of love, well, that's only found in the cross of Jesus. But that's going to be beautiful to have that kind of love among us. And I encourage you, church, there's an element of that that we can enter into with one another. We are commanded to pray that the kingdom of heaven would come to this earth. That if we can love one another, John 13 says, everyone else will know you're my disciples. But how? The solution to all selfish ambition is understanding the selfless ambition of Jesus Christ. He gave us the answer in his own life. He lived that thing we were supposed to do. He lived a selfless life of pure love. He addresses his apostles. He says, listen, don't be indignant to these men. Don't be angry that he, they want these thrones. It's fine to want these thrones. But what he's saying is they're misappropriating the thrones. They are thinking of it worldly. They are thinking of it as a selfish ambition. Jesus says, you know the rulers of these Gentiles, how they love to be up so that they can push the small man down. They love the positions of rule and authority. The great ones exercise authority over the others. But not so among you, my disciples. The great among you will be a deacon, servant. The, the first one will be a slave. The one who lets go of his whole will. What is a slave except someone who has no will of their own? Only will of a slave is to do the will of their master. That's the first in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, even so the Son of Man, I have come not to be served, but to serve that I would give myself as a ransom for the lives of many. That's the center. That's the fulcrum of history. That's the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. That Jesus Christ has taken all the corruption that leads even to the wars we suffer today and he has pinpointed on the crosshairs of his own cross so that in the age to come, all selfishness will be done away. All selfish ambition will be consumed with the cup that he swallowed in the garden. That he is able to be extremely ambitious for you. Do you see that cross was ambition? There is nothing but pure ambition. You realize Jesus has been saying from the north to the south of the map, I am in Caesarea Philippi. I need to go to Jerusalem to die. I am in Galilee. I need to go to Jerusalem to die. And right here on the outsides of the city, he's telling them again, I am going to die for you. And no one will stop me. That is, there is nothing wrong with ambition. Go ahead and be as ambitious as you want. Because that is how Jesus Christ has saved you. It is a selfless ambition. He has only changed the type. It is not a selfish ambition, but it is a selfless ambition. And he has went down into the depths of the belly of death for you to save you, to give his body as a ransom for you, not to be served by you, but to serve you. And all that ambition, lock it up tight in your life. And let it go. Let your life go. Serve. Die. 
Give your life to Christ and anyone you meet. The promise is you will not be sorry of your rewards. This beautiful gospel, this raw ambition. When I was growing up in our house, our first house, uh, older house when I was uh, much younger, that's back when I think playing in the snow was fun. If you remember those days when you liked playing in the snow. Um, maybe you still do. I'm sorry, I can't share that with you. Maybe in heaven we will. Um, and you're cold. Your hands are red. You feel like you're about ready uh, to have them fall off. You know, as a kid, you never really can get your fingers in the gloves the right way anyway. Well, at the old house, it was a radiator heating system. And I do miss that. Because I'd come in, sit there on the living room floor. It's a big, long radiator. Obviously, it's much longer in my memory when I was so much smaller. But it would sit there right next to the television. And I'd sit there on the floor underneath it. Put my feet right underneath it. And all my coldness would just melt away. It would radiate upon me. I need to tell you that that is the cross of our Lord. That this world is cold. And everybody is out to get theirs. Selfish ambition is the air we breathe. To bow low under the cross and let the warmth of what Jesus Christ has just said I have not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life away, to meditate, that is, to let that heat radiate upon your soul and melt away every motive you could have, that you'd wake up and wish yourself no different than dead. That you would say, I have nothing to do in this life except my father's business. I have nothing I want to do except what he wants me to do. I have no direction to go except to bend and sway to my father's will. You'll find yourself walking with Christ more closely than ever before. For that is the exact footsteps that he took. cross transforms this world and this church and our hearts in such a way that we may say, your success is my pleasure. Your happiness is my joy. Your progress, if I can see you progress, do well, oh, that's my reward. I don't compete. I only want good for you, even to the neglect of me. That even your brightness is my blessedness. Do you see that's what heaven is? That we have degrees of glory, degrees of honor, degrees of praise in heaven. But if only I could see some of you shining, that would make me all the more happier in return. And there is a cycle of love in this, in which there is no more orientation to us looking to get ahead, looking to get above. But in the midst of that diversity, perfect harmony, that is, done by the love, by the Spirit of God, as we've seen Jesus Christ model for us in our own lives. These things, this is alien speech. 
This is hard to preach. This is not of this world. But it is of heaven. This is what makes heaven. Heaven. Therefore, everything counts. As we come to the Lord's table today, I want you to remember that everything you have in this life counts. There are rewards for you. He has given you talents. It's going to be Christmas time. Stephanie, who does an amazing job with all these children's ministries, I was speaking to her just this week about the children's uh, Christmas program. And I was thinking about how that image fits perfect for who we are as children of God. What's going to happen, I'm going to guess, because I've seen it a few times now every year, is the tiny little people among us, the cute little ones, are going to get up here and stand on these stairs and sing a song completely out of tune. And if you take your eyes off them and look at their parents, they're full of joy. What are our rewards? Mercy. Jesus Christ does not make mercenaries. We're not going out there to try to just work a little bit more to get a reward from the Lord. No. It is grace upon grace. He has saved you by His grace. He will reward you even on top of that by His grace. He's positioned you and filled you with the Spirit so that you will do the good works He's prepared before you to do that you might even get more rewards. And of course we know at the end of this age, our best works are children's songs sung out of tune that would only be enjoyable to our Father. But they are very much enjoyable to our Father. That that is the reward. That He would see you grow even one inch in godliness and all heaven would erupt in praise. So Lord, let us have this happen. That you would have us grow in holiness. That we are not saved by our merits, Lord. We are saved only by yours. And the merits we have, Lord, are only in Christ. But Father, we ask particularly that you would give us this love. That we would be full of love. That is, emptied of all our selfish ambition. Free to be vessels of grace. Free to love one another in a way that truly glorifies your name. Father, we ask that you would fill us now, even by this table, that you would unite us together in this unity that only comes at the cross. Melt away our cold hearts. Fill us with an ambition that is for sacrifice and service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we prepare for communion and sing with us Rock of Ages. <laughs>